Man, I can't wait uh, for school to start. I love my kids. I love each and every one of my kids. Uh, but they're ready to start as well. And so as they're starting, we're kind of winding down our series, Jesus and the Torah. We're looking at uh, shadows, types, uh, illustrations that all point to Jesus in the New Testament. But before I do this, I need you just to, to stay calm. You need to call dispatch via radio or 911. You need to wash the bite gently with soap and water if available. You need to remove watches, rings, or anything else that may constrict swelling. You need to immobilize the affected area and then get to the nearest medical facility. This is what you are to do if you're bitten by a rattlesnake. Now, since being, a rattle, being bitten by a rattlesnake is a very real possibility in Colorado. I want every single one of you, uh, I want you to know what to do in case of such an emergency. Now, I'm not a wildlife manager. I'm not a herpetologist. I don't study serpents. I'm a pastor, so why start my sermon this way? To warm you up for today's passage. That's all about Snakes, snakes, snakes everywhere, venomous, fiery snakes, biting people. We see people dying, people being bitten and dying from that venom. We see people in need of help and God providing a way for his people to live. But it's also an episode that points us to the later work of Jesus Christ the greater salvation he provides, and our need today for an antidote. Turn to Numbers 21. Numbers, it's early on. It's the fourth book, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Numbers 21 is not a book that is quoted often. It's not a book that you maybe go to for your daily Bible study, but it's actually a very rich book that has law in there, it has story in there, history. Um, it has a lot in there, and, and in there is uh, evidence that um, Jesus Christ and the gospel is being foreshadowed. And so what's happening in Numbers? In Genesis, God had promised that Abraham's descendants, his chosen people, God's chosen people would dwell in the land of Canaan, the promised land. In Exodus, God frees his people from Egyptian bondage. Leviticus, they receive the law at Mount Sinai. And I'm giving very, very, uh, over, uh, very simple overviews. I know there's more to those books. But Numbers is the account from, from their journey from, from Mount Sinai to the steppes of Moab on the border of Canaan. And it's an early, uh, it's early Hebrew title. It translates to in the wilderness, which is appropriate because it records much of their wilderness wanderings. And throughout this journey in the wilderness, we see Israel do a number of things. We see them fear. We see them disobey. We see them grumble. I love that word, grumble. They grumble like, like children on a very long road trip. You ever done a very long road trip with young children? 
quite a bit of grumbling happens. And grumbling's the worst. They grumble about the difficulty of their journey. Israel does. The food and the water. The impossibility of conquering Canaan. So God delays their entry into the promised land by 40 years. Enough for an entire generation to die off because they grumble. And so in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 5, we we get some more grumbling. Look at verse 4. This is right after a great victory that God has provided for them. This is what happens from Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and water, and we loathe this worthless food. Here we go with food and water again. They're already complaining about something they've complained about in chapter 11. The food, scarcity, they're bored of it. Grumble, grumble. And if you see in this grumbling, a few things are happening. In the past, they first complained against Moses or Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron. And now, they're first complaining against who? God. They're complaining against God. They're also knowingly disparaging God's provision for them. God has sustained Israel supernaturally up to this point during their time in the wilderness. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Bread from heaven came down. So every morning they would wake up and see on the ground God's provision for them. God is going to take care of us. We have a daily reminder of that. And this blessing soon became a burden. They're like, manna, ugh. All we eat is manna, 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 manna. You know, manna sandwiches, manna cakes, manna cotty. Pastor joke. Remember the good old days in Egypt when we were slaves, breaking our backs, suffering under oppression, being beaten? Controlled? Well, the food was still good though. Discontentment always blinds one to the gracious gifts God has already given them. Lastly, they're blaming God for their lot. Why have you brought us out here into the wilderness? Why are we out here for so long? Why are we in this situation? God, this is your fault. They speak up against God. And so here's my question. Why are they in the wilderness? Why are they wandering around in the wilderness? Because of their disbelief, because of their distrust of God's power, because of their disobedience. They are where they are because of what they have done, because of their sin and rebellion. When our hearts grumble against God, when we fail to trust him, when we throw his provisions in his faith, in his face, he will sometimes come alongside us in, in quiet moments and restore us gently. Other times he will allow calamity, hardship, or difficult circumstances to move us towards repentance. And here he sends snakes. 
Look at verse six. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Fiery serpents. This could either be the pain of the bite or the burning of the venom. A few weeks ago, we were at a summer gathering underneath the pavilion there, and it was about, you know, probably about eight or nine of us. Uh, we're praying, we're talking. Um, the kids are playing in the back corner of the basketball court outside, and, and then all of a sudden, I hear screaming. I hear screaming, and, and I see all of the kids running from the same general direction, and I'm like, they're not playing. They're screaming in pain. And I run down, and I come to find out they had stirred up a wasp nest. And every single one, except for one, got bitten. Some got bitten multiple times all over their body. And it was like nom. Man, like they like kids hitting the ground screaming. It was, uh, I mean, it was the craziest experience. You see these giant, even little Lainey had a stinger, a, sting, a bite on her, a sting on her from a wasp, and she's crying. And I mean, it was, I still have PTSD from that day because <laughs> it was so hectic. And we were all like, what's going on? Like, I thought they got bit by an actual fiery snake and they're all running from it. You know, thank goodness it was wasp and nobody was allergic and things like that. But, but I read this passage and I'm like, man, my heart broke there. I was just like, man, this is terrible. And so I read a passage like this and I'm like, what is God doing? Like this seems rather harsh, right? You know, they're complaining about the food. What's, what's the big deal? You, you're, you're just going to throw them a bunch of snakes and, and people are screaming and getting bit and dying? Like this seems rather harsh. You know, I understand the God of John three sixteen for God so loved the world. But, but what do I make of God here? What do I do with God here? God is more holy and just than we could ever describe or imagine. And being just, our God must deal with sin. We want a God who deals with sin. We want a God who deals with injustice and evil in rebellion. We just don't want that God for us. <laughs> and so God being just must deal with sin and their sin is anything but innocent. Israel has continually rebelled against God. They have thrown what God has done for them in his face time and time again. They have outright rejected him. And we're told all throughout scripture from the garden to Romans that the wages of sin is death. And the author of life, and this is not a popular thing you hear in church today, but the author of life, God can choose when to give life and when to take it away. Also, when it comes to God's judgments and his ways of handling his people, I have to realize as a sinful human being with a limited understanding, I do not have the moral high ground. I don't get to judge God. And that's hard for a lot of people. And so people respond to God's judgment differently. They say, man, that's not fair. 
God isn't just, God isn't good, or they're moved to fear the Lord, to respect God, to honor God in reverent fear. So what happens with the Israelites? Look at verse seven. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a certain serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The people realizing their desperate situation, the, the seriousness of their sin and their helplessness, they tell Moses to beseech God on their behalf. Moses, please mediate for us. And God tells Moses to make an image of that snake, of that fiery serpent, a symbol of their sin and God's curse on the people. And he says, place it on a pole, on a standard, high up. And if anyone is bitten, when they look at that serpent, they will be healed and live. Now, I want to make something very clear here. This isn't some ancient form of magic, voodoo, or witchcraft where the actual object is thought to have power. It's interesting to note that in 2 Kings 18, the king actually destroys this, this, this standard, this pole, because God's people ended up worshiping it. They ended up giving up offerings to it. God is not creating a charm or a talisman. He's not saying the bronze serpent inherently has powers to ward off evil and keep away bad energy like those crystals the white ladies with dreadlocks sell down in Manitou Springs. The solution works only because of God's power. One commentary said by looking at the very symbol of their judgment, the Lord is having them acknowledge. This is the judgment that you, Lord, have justly brought upon us and only you can deliver us from it. To live, they looked in faith that God was their only source of healing and salvation. So, crazy story in Israel's history, in our history. Turn to John 3. We're going to fast forward roughly 1,400 years or so. <laughs> Turn to John 3. Not 1 John, but John 3. A Pharisee named Nicodemus sought Jesus out at night, and he recognized Jesus as a teacher from God. He says, you must be a teacher from God. Jesus' reply is, unless someone is born again, he can never see the kingdom of God. What, a, what an interesting response to, hey, you seem like a teacher of God. Oh, unless you've been born again, you will not see or enter the kingdom of God. And this confuses Nicodemus. How is somebody to be born twice? I mean, I'm supposed to crawl. I mean, what's like, I got to go through the womb again. Like, this sounds very strange. This sounds weird. And so Jesus responds by talking about spiritual birth. 
It's the cleansing and transforming work of the spirit that brings new life. Unless you experience it, you'll never be reconciled to God. You'll never be forgiven. You'll never enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus still struggles to understand what this all means. And to grab his attention even more, Jesus says this. Look at verses 14 and 15. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What an interesting illustration, event for Jesus to use to describe his work in the here and now for Nicodemus. Probably wouldn't have been my first choice because when you read about the fiery serpents, there's still a part of you that goes, this is kind of different. This is just kind of different. But Nicodemus would have known this reference. He was an expert in the law. And Jesus is saying, remember the bronze serpent way back in, in numbers? It was pointing to me and my work here on earth. The wrath of God was on his people way back then for their rebellion. They were snake bitten and headed towards physical death, helpless. Apart from Christ, the wrath of God is on all who sin. We as humans have been snake bitten and headed towards spiritual death, life apart from God forever. We are helpless on our own. The serpent was lifted up. Jesus will be lifted up first on the cross and then in glory. They looked at the symbol of their sin and God's curse on them. In 2 Corinthians 5.2, Paul describes Jesus like this, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He adds in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. One pastor said, in becoming like the snake, he was the embodiment of our sin and the embodiment of our curse. And in becoming sin and curse for us, he took ours away. Israel looked to the bronze snake in faith to live physically. When we look in faith at Jesus Christ lifted up on the cross, our only source of healing, our only remedy, our sin and God's wrath are taken away. They're dealt with. And we are given spiritual, eternal life with God forever. And so Nicodemus is being challenged to turn to Jesus for new birth for new life in much of the same way as the ancient Israelites were commanded to turn to the bronze snake for life. Faith, surrender, repent, trust, believe, see, look, 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 look to Jesus to overcome the death your sin has brought about, to receive eternal life, a new life of kingdom Citizenship. Look to Christ. Look up at the person and work of Christ. And plenty of people say, no. I'm good. 
I don't, I don't need to look up. And people fail to look for a lot of different reasons. You may have yourself convinced that you aren't in need of, of any healing. Only those who've been bitten, only those need an antidote. Only those who are sick need a doctor. And guess what? I, I, I'm not sick. Now, some of us are spiritual hypochondriacs. Like we easily recognize our own sin. We, 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 you know, we hear a, pe- a sermon and we're like, yep, that's me. I struggle with that. Uh, you know, I have that problem. I deal with that. I also deal with that. Sometimes to a fault. <laughs> but we, we easily go to God and say, I need your help. I need you to save me. I know I fall short. I, I tried to look up the opposite of the term hypochondriac. There really is no opposite. But we all know that family member. They could be sick as a dog and not do anything about it. They won't admit it. Probably grandfather. Usually a guy. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're 105 degree temperature. They're bleeding out of one ear. Their hair's falling out. Their skin is green. And they're like, no, I'm good. Uh, it's just a flu. I don't need to see a doctor. I'm not sick. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are snake bitten. All are headed towards death. All must look to Jesus for life. And I pray that all see that. We also fail to look because we turn to other things for healing. We're busy trying other antidotes, other anti-venoms, other physicians. We read self-help books. We follow this guru and this life coach's system of success. We look within ourselves and we say, maybe if I just try hard enough, if I just pray enough, if I have enough quiet times and read the Bible enough, that will serve as a partial remedy for my plight. Instead of realizing that you and I must throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus for righteousness, for salvation, and for new life. We must throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. We must look to him because all other remedies fail. Finally, we fail to look because we believe we're just too far gone look at our snake bites and we say, you know, the venom is set in. I've been bitten too many times. There's, you know, necrosis. I'm, I'm just too far gone. Wages of sin is death. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm headed towards death. God can't save a person like me. There's no cure potent enough. I'm too great of a sinner, if that's you, I want you to know that you are undervaluing the power of God in Christ's blood. Martin Luther said, one drop of Christ's blood is sufficient to redeem a thousand worlds. And so if, if Christ's blood is sufficient to redeem the sin of every single person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the cumulative sin of all those people, He can handle your junk. Look at verse 15 again. And whoever believes in me, 
may have eternal life. Whoever, whoever, I don't care who you are. No heart is too hard for him to reach. No one is too far gone. There is room in heaven for all types. The kingdom of God is and will be full of all kinds of riffraff. God is capable of saving all types of people. He is powerful enough to bring about new life in you. So look, look up for life. Look up for eternal life. And even as believers, continue to look up. Not to be saved over and over and over again, but to fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. I encourage you this year, with your children going to school in such a crazy climate. Guys, our world, I mean... I'm not doom and gloom, but our world is nuts right now. And you can try to hide them in your house. I don't, wherever they go, it's nuts. Turn on the television. Do not let your head stay down. Do not look to yourself. Look to God for life and everything else. Amen? Amen. I'll be praying for you as you do that. Let's all pray together.